everybody, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something not through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and this is Debbie coming to you from sunny South Florida, and it is wonderful today. I've had a little bit of rain. My flowers are happy, and all is good in South Florida. I just want to say, last week's show, everybody, I interviewed my 93-year-old father for his birthday. It was his birthday, and what a hoot. It's a man that I love with all my heart, and he's had 93 years of experiences that none of us could talk about the way he did. He is funny. I encourage you to go to last week's show and just listen. If you listen to it on podcast, he's just a hoot. So Dr. Jack, you're in for another seven years. That employment contract has you working for me until you're 100, so hang in there. Hang in there. My guest today, folks, is another man that has... I wrote down nine lives, and he's on, like, number seven. <laughs> My guest is Mr. Chad Osinga, Mr. Tenacity. Chad, welcome from, where are you? Uh, well, thank you for having me. And, yes, I'm in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia, so about an hour and a half south of D.C. Gotcha. Well, welcome. I don't know what, what Virginia, actually, I'm going to Virginia next week for a wedding. Hey. I'll be in Florida at the end of this month. There you go. We'll pass. We should, uh, well, I was going to say do a house swap, but I'm going to be up in Northern Virginia. Anyway, Chad, welcome. And uh, I've spent the last couple hours with you. Yeah, I heard. I, yep, I told you, I do my research on my guests. And we met because I've been on your podcast. Yes. Which is called? The Legend of You legend of you and we had a blast and when we start talking I'm like oh, I've got to have that man on my show and the more I listen to what you talked about in the other shows the more I realize that our lives are running parallel running you know perpendicular we have so many things in common and I believe that most people do if they would just listen to each other talk and have dialogue yeah I couldn't agree more And I I actually wrote an article last week for a Positive Tribe magazine, which is, I I would love for you to be a contributor to that. It was about civility and respect. Mm -hmm. And I just got on my high horse because when my, putting a, a production out for my dad's birthday, actually it was a thing for my company. I sent a promotion out and said, Dr. Jack's turning 93. We're going to have a 9.3% discount on all the products. And if you call him or write to him and wish him a happy birthday, you get a 93% or a $93 coupon towards your next purchase. <laughs> it was so much fun. We got the greatest emails, the greatest calls until one. And one man wrote in and was so nasty to me. And I'm like, why? Where does this come from? You know, why do people fall back? And maybe we can talk about that. Is yeah. why is the fallback on so many people nasty, vicious? You know, being so negative. And I didn't. I, this is not what the show is about today. But I got on that roll, and I, I did hear you talk about mindset reset. And we will get into that because I think all of us need to pause and change the way we're thinking going forward. Yeah, I'm I'm big on mindset. It's uh, saved my life. I you know, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But 
you know, if it wasn't for that shift in my mindset, I was going to stay negative, you know, moving forward in my life. So, you know, I, I probably have an answer of why he, he was like that. Cause there's always, there's always one and it, it's internal, you know, but uh, before we get into this, happy birthday to your dad. That's amazing. 93 years. Uh, it, it is incredible. And I would love to contribute. I write for authority magazine a lot. I'm actually working on two articles for them as we speak. So, uh, you just let me know, and I would love to contribute. Absolutely. Well, it's that one moment, and we'll talk about this too, because writing has been important to you. Yes. I wrote in my journal, I think we talked about that on your show, I had 4,000 pages of journaling through the through this uh, financial scam, and it was a release. I don't do that much anymore, but I love to write monthly with a little bit of pressure to get it out. But it's fun. It's a great release. And I put my head, headsets on and I listen to some classical music with no words, you know, just the music and just get it out. And I'm like you when you're on your mo on motorcycle, just poof. All right. So we've kind of like skirted all around a lot of, lot of topics and I want to hit on them. But Chad, restart. When I start my show, I love to get my guests to tell us where they grew up and Siblings, no siblings. What was your family situation like when you were little? So uh, I was born in Virginia. I was born in a very small town uh, called Stewart Straft, Virginia. It's in the Shenandoah Valley, Valley. And there's nothing but farms, maybe a few factories and a corner store. Right. Like we we have like three stoplights, you know, and that's that's about it. Um, but I was the only child. My I never knew my father. I actually just met my father this Father's Day after 40 years. Um, but he had tried to find me. It's a long story, and I'm sure we can get into that. But never met him growing up. And then my mother, she was addicted to drugs. She had struggled with drug use way before I was ever born. When I was born, I was born with Earth's palsy. So the left side of my body wasn't functioning and the doctor basically gave her an ultimatum and said, hey, you have to work with this kid or he'll never move the left side of his body ever again. This is just what you have to do. And so she took a small hiatus from the drugs to help me. But then she fell right back into it. And so I lived a life of poverty. I lived a life with no structure, no discipline, no direction. My mom just, you know, as I grew older, she grew further and further into her drug habit and it ended up going into uh, crack cocaine. And when she shifted into that, that phase of her life, things got horribly bad. And at 14, my house was raided because she allowed drug dealers to come into our home. So the same people she's buying these drugs from now, she is allowing to live in our home. They had buried kilos of, of cocaine and crack in our backyard. I had no clue. And, you know, it was just a bad situation. I, I looked up to them for a, a long period of my life because that's the only male figures that I really had. And I thought that's what success was. I thought that was what it was supposed to be. And if I could be like them, then I would not have the life that I lived even though they lived in my house, right? It didn't make any sense now that I look back on it, but as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, and then into my my early teenager stages, like that, that's what I thought was what, what it was. So the home was raided at 14. My mom went to federal prison and I was sent to live with family in Oklahoma. And that was supposed to be a good situation, but it turned really south really quick. They used me as a paycheck. I didn't know that either at the time, but they were getting paid by the state to, to house me. And they had a, and I'm not against church at all, but they had a position in church and they used that position as kind of like this authoritative manner, right? Like they couldn't be touched because of who they were in that church. And they really, pushed that upon me. And then they began to abuse me physically and mentally. And it got to a point where I just couldn't take it anymore. I was a year and a half of, I mean, I'm talking when they would discipline me, we'll say I would be bleeding. I would be black and blue and I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, I, I, I couldn't. And so I ran away. And the first time I got caught, 
Um, but the second time I made it all the way from Oklahoma, all the way back to Virginia and I made it back. The The state ended up arresting me, but then releasing me to, uh, custody with my aunt who was taking care of my grandmother. So, you know, I, I eventually found stability, uh, in my later teenage years, but the damage was done. I was really upstairs. I was not in a good place. Right. I was like that guy that, that called and was negative. I was negative. I, I didn't, I couldn't see positive at, in life. Right. So that was a little bit about how I kind of grew up. Well, and it was interesting at that age. So too, did you ever feel that you could speak up? Was no. there, there was no safe place to go. No, no, I didn't feel, I, I used to, I used to look outside car windows and see birds and wish I was them so I could fly away. Oh, goodness. Uh, they would. All right, so when I was in Oklahoma, they wouldn't allow me to talk to anybody from Virginia. And if they did, the like couple times they did, they monitored the phone calls. And if I said anything or they said anything they, they didn't like, they would end the phone call. They read all of my mail before I was able to read it. They basically wouldn't allow me to talk to my mother while she was incarcerated. I think maybe once or twice. And again, it was monitored. There was no independent privacy uh that's kind of how i got caught because i did i they stuck me in the house for for the most part right so there wasn't a lot of freedom uh there was no one i could reach out to because i was just stuck in an environment where i knew no one but them and they were in control uh, it borders on on child abuse oh it was today it would never well i can't say it would never this happened well you're you're 40 so this happened a while ago yes yes but I think in time, we're a little more sensitive to those things. But then again, you know, there was somebody down here in Florida that had a kid locked up in a, in a cage. So it's, yeah. it's evil. And, and that power over a child uh, is always evil in, in my mind. And it's, it's such a shame because sometimes it is done in the name of religion. And, uh, and I'm very faithful too. So I, I makes me cringe when I hear that, especially for young men, because now you've grown up with that. That's the norm. You've got the drug dealers and, and look at the mentors, quote unquote, that you had. Uh, not very good. So you, you tried to escape. You tried to run away from it all and it didn't happen. And they picked you up and caught you in um, not a good situation. What did grandma say all through this? So, she, well, she was trying to reach me the entire time. She, all right. So when I was growing up, I, I didn't, I failed to mention this part, but she was like my saving grace. So when my mom was strung out, she was always the person I could call because my mom would leave me for hours to go do drugs, buy drugs, whatever she did. And we didn't live in a good neighborhood. So I was always scared. And so I, I was always able to call her. She would pick me up from, you know, high school or not from high school, from uh, elementary school and buy me like milkshakes from Hardee's. I used to love that. So she was always a, a breath of fresh air. And when I was in Oklahoma, they wouldn't allow her really to talk to me. And so it, it bothered her greatly. Um, and then when I got back, when I ran away and I got back, the court said that she was too old to have custody of me. So that's when it went to my aunt who was taking care of my grandmother. And, you know, at that point, she was just sorry that that was the case. But she, you know, there was nothing she could really do. Yes. Grandma, you really want to protect your grandkids. And, and yeah. talk because there's that, I mean, I have grandchildren and I love them to death. And, and I worry not about what's going on right now, but if things were to change, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not around to be there. And my daughter one time said, mom, would you be the guardian of the kids? And I'm thinking, I would love to be, but I don't think I can. You need to find a younger yeah. <laughs> one of your brothers, uh, because at some point we do get old and, and, I get exhausted watching my grandkids. I love them to death, but that's why you can say, here you go. Yeah. Yeah. So you ended up joining the army. Yes. Be all you can be. Safe place to go, right? Discipline. Yeah. yeah. How'd that go for you? Well, I mean, it was the best decision I had made outside of marrying my wife, but. We'll get there too. Yeah. But was it, it wasn't wonderful off the the get-go right because i again i had no discipline no i mean other than when i was in in oklahoma but that was more of a negative you know thing so i i didn't even associate discipline to something good right like i i always saw it as you know a negative and so coming into that was very hard it was a big adjustment 
why did you why did you go military? Was there someone that encouraged that or? Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, my wife is what kind of inspired me to uh, become different. I met her in high school and we ended up she ended up giving me an ultimatum to be different. Right. She was like, if you want to be with me. You have to stop selling drugs. You have to get out of the streets. You have to do something better with your life. And so I did. And it was a process. And after our second child, we were living in low income housing. And I looked around and I was like, yeah, they'll grow up with loving parents, but they won't have any more opportunities than I had if I don't do something different. But I had dropped out of school in ninth grade. Uh, So (laughs) I didn't have anything to leverage to give that better life. And I thought about my grandfather who I looked up to. He was a Marine. He had fought in the Korean war and world war II, And I adored him. I thought that he was, he was my hero. So I said, okay, Marines and Marines wouldn't accept me because I dropped out of high school and because I had tattoos all over my forearms, but the army, they gave my name to an army recruiter. They called me and the army takes anyone. So well, they used to, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Back then, they man, they they took me with open arms. They paid for me to get my GED and said, hey, we'll give you that life that you want. And off off to the races I was. So I had, I had kind of already made that decision going into the recruiter's office. That was my only opportunity or, or chance to have something better for my family. So I was going to do it come hell or high water. I was that that was the choice that I was going to make. So I came in ready. And so the recruiter didn't really have to to do much for their paycheck when it came to me. But basic training, I mean, I went through I went through OTS officer training, so it's a little bit different than basic. Explain the met. What's the mental? So yeah, I, so I'm I'm combat arms, and we go through OSET. So it's uh, most army uh, jobs they have. You go through your basic training, and then you go through your job training, whatever that is, and. When you go through your job training, it's a little more relaxed, but not when you're combat uh, arms. If you're infantry, if you were a tanker, uh, scout like I was, you went through, I think it was 12 weeks, maybe it was 16. It's been a, it's been a long time, uh, but in, it's basically basic training all the way through. So a lot of yelling, a lot of uh, a lot of discipline, a lot of mental mind games and then pushing you uh, to kind of, and breaking you down, right. To, to be the person that they want you to be. And that's really the, the aim. They understand that you are combat arms. You're going to have to experience things that are pretty intense. So they, they break you down and they, then they rebuild you back up into the, the individual that they want you to be. And it doesn't always work out like that for all the people in basic training. There's a lot of people that, you know, uh, struggle even more than I did, but I, I accepted it. I got to a point that I realized I wasn't, I couldn't go back. Right. Like I had made this decision as hard as it might've been for me. I had to figure this thing out and make the best of it. And that's, that's what I did. You know? And you had your wife and you had two kids. So you did have some support encouraging. I mean, I am all for military training for everybody. I think it really gets you to look at the world in a different perspective uh, and I, I really enjoyed, I was in the Air Force eight years and I really enjoyed it. And my kids, um, well, I have two boys active duty right now with their wives. And I, I think it, it creates a sense of patriotism, a sense of self-sufficiency, uh, brotherhood, sisterhood, and, and thank you so much for your service and for your grandpa and, and for all of our listeners that are veterans, uh, and on active duty right now. I, I was very patriotic bone in me. And, uh, yeah. and it's, thank you for that. So it gave you purpose though, because a lot of people are like, ah, oh, basic training, it, it, you know, manipulates you and changes you, but it does change you. It changes you. I think for the good, I've seen a lot of young men going in that were like you that had no direction and came out and have made extraordinary men. Yeah. I think it, it was, it was what I needed. Um, you know, I, I think you, when you come from an extreme background, you also need an equally extreme force to change you into a something better, right? And that's what the army did for me. It it put me in a position to kind of bring out what I didn't know existed on the inside of me. 
And, you know, because of my upbringing, I didn't believe in myself. I didn't think that I could do anything great. And then I entered the army and they challenged me. I mean, even the small, like, okay, we'll just say obstacle course, right? We, you know, they call it a confidence course in, in the army. They don't call it an obstacle course like the civilians do, right? It's a, a confident. Why? Because that's a mile stretch or however long, depending on the one. And when you get done with that, you are fairly confident that, you know, in yourself, because look what you just did, right? And so little things like that began to build up in me. And I started saying, oh, I can run three miles. I can run five miles. I can do this, this, you know, confidence course. You know what? Let's see if I can do it faster. Right. And it, it all kind of just built up for me. And then I just, I went all in on myself, right? Like I immersed myself in being a soldier. I began to fall in love with the life the the mission it gave me a purpose like you just said like like i i lacked purpose i lacked a reason to get up i mean yes i had a wife and i had kids right but i'm a firm believer that you have to also have something outside of that that drives you to something bigger than your life right because if it's if that's why there's so many people that they work a nine to five they get off they drink beer they go to sleep and they wake up and they do it and they don't do anything more than that. And they justify it by, well, I'm taking care of my family. But when it's bigger than you, when there's, you know, uh, countries that need liberation, when there's, you know, millions of people riding on your dedication, on your service, it's a game changer. Right. And and so it, it does. It, it, it motivates you to be the very best version of you every single day, not just once, not just twice, but on a daily basis, on a consistent basis. So that's what it did for me. And I ended up, you know, becoming a sniper, which is a, a fairly hard uh, thing to do. And then later on in that, uh, in my career towards the end, I actually was accepted to, or chosen to be an instructor uh, for combat applications. And I instructed all four branches of the military. I mean, this is the guy that had a learning disability, uh, a crackhead for a mother it had no confidence in himself. And now I'm teaching all, not just the army, the all four branches. And then I started teaching the FBI, us marshals, SWAT teams. I mean, you name it. I had people flying all over the place to train with someone who was the lesser of most that would be in that position. Right. And so it just, it goes to show you what you're capable of and if it wasn't for the army, I would have never found out that I, I could do that. I could be that. I, I could really believe in myself and, and believe in that belief. Right. There, I think there's something special in that as well. So. Well, and I was like the team aspect of it, too, where you're when you're in your in your own life by yourself and isolated, which a lot of people have been, especially the last couple of years, you only see through the funnel. You can't see the big picture. And that's what I think the military did for a lot of us. It said, okay, so you can be, you know, be the best you can be. You can be, and we can see it for you. And here's some tools and some training and some support and a kick in the pants, uh, okay. but you can do it. And that was what was so extraordinary. And did you have any weapons training prior to that? I grew up, I grew up with guns. But uh, no, not really. I mean, besides a BB gun and a blow dart, you know, uh, that, that was really it. I didn't have anything going into the army. So I was, but they, they actually tell you that people that have zero knowledge of shooting do better in the military because they have nothing to base what they're learning off of. So they're just a sponge. They just, and so I was a spy and I was, I was, I became a sponge to everything. And did they take you out after some weapons testing? I mean, cause yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you the, um, I didn't go to the one at Fort Benning. I went to uh, a special operations uh, sniper course. And so there was a lot of prerequisites. Uh, you already had to be a good shooter. People think that you go to snipers school to learn how to shoot. Oh, it's not the case. You, you already have to have a, a, a very good working knowledge and, operational skills behind the, the weapon so uh yeah i i already had you know immersed myself in all of that and done some like um uh was it long range marksmanship and things of that nature uh prior to being able to get this spot so yeah well i wish uh, my uh, my late husband was a, a 
very good with guns. And and when he passed, um, we actually had a Lampua mm. where we shot that. Um, yeah. He always figured if he had to do perimeter security <laughs> on top of the tabernacle in Salt Lake or something, he was going to be able to shoot like miles out. And uh, it was an, an incredible um, to the point where it got a little scary because he had so many weapons. And when he passed, I had to get rid of so many things. Um, but he always, he said, the guys that were trained were the best. They knew what to do. And uh, we won't get political on gun control, but I know that I grew up with training. My kids have grown up with training. Uh, I remember my daughter when she was probably five or six up in Vermont with my dad sitting in the backyard with a BB gun. And boy, she turned into Annie Oakley. But she <laughs> she knew how to protect herself. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the point. And so as a sniper, that's incredible. I know there are a lot of people that would be listening that would be like, oh, I want to meet him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know my boys, you know, my boys are, are pilots, but they rely on those guys that we rely on them. So <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. it's a, a working team. relationship. There's the teamwork. So you were in the army for all those years. Um, but then the army decided to release you. Yeah. What happened there? So I, well, it started with uh, a deployment to Iraq. I ended up going off of a roof. And I landed head first. My nods or my night vision went into my eye. It, I mean, my neck, uh, it, it just really messed up my, my whole head, neck, my eye. The jelly around my retina was dented and in, in really in bad shape. But they couldn't do surgery because it was the way it was positioned. If there was a, a high risk that I would go blind. So they were just like, you're going to see spots probably for the rest of your life. And it just is what it is. And then, you know, um, I think because I had such a physical job, um, once that first injury really hit me, it was like just, I don't know, like a daisy chain of effects. And then I ended up having multiple surgeries and I was trying to fight to stay in. And they were fighting to, to send me away. And so there was this back and forth for probably a year where I'm trying to stay in. I'm trying to prove that I'm okay. I'm like, hey, give me an assignment. Do you know, I don't have to do the, you know, anything crazy. I can be an instructor. I can do, you know, just continue, keep me as an instructor. I'll be good. And they they were just like, no, you have too many issues. Uh, we would, you know, be remiss if we kept you. And so they ended up sending me actually to the wounded warrior uh, uh, facility in Fort Belvoir. And then from there, I was going back and forth to Walter Reed to get treatment because they can't release you without getting you in, in a decent uh, place. And then once I was released, uh, they actually retired me. They, they gave me an honorable uh, medically retired me and then they sent me to it's called polytrauma in the veterans um veterans affairs hospital in richmond virginia and so polytrauma they deal with people that have combat related injuries uh, a lot of you know people that that have lost limbs or um have had serious injuries like myself where you know they're going to need you know time even after they're released to get fixed so I went there for about a year or so, maybe a little longer than a year. Um, and then I just started this journey, but it was, it was not good. I was, I was lost. I was yeah. lost. You're not in a good spot. I've heard that from many veterans that once they get out, my brother retired as a Colonel and, and I saw it in him because you, you lose your purpose and you lose your identity. Once the uniform comes off, now you're just anybody. And they don't know your history. And I know uh, my brother went from colonel to mister in yeah. an organization that had no military, had no idea of what he'd been through for 20 something years. And it was it was it was damaging in many ways. Talk about PTSD from Afghanistan. You get it when you go into the corporate world. You do. You do. So you actually fell into that, though, the depression and, and the where did you go from there? Because you still have family. <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, it's crazy because I didn't even touch on the fact that I have three, I have four kids four. and three of them are special needs. Uh, my daughter had a stroke when she, when I was stationed in Germany and we were about to gear up and go to 
Afghanistan and she ended up having a stroke while we were training. I actually just like a workout. We were doing two days to get ready for the deployment. And um, then I have two. When she had it. Yes. That story to me was amazing because again, you, you had your wife there. Yeah. Tell the story of the, of the, that, that one was, that's probably one of, that's probably what inspires me the most yeah. to, to be the person that you're talking to right now. I had my phase, but so my daughter, I'm, I'm at a, a gym and I get a call that there's something wrong, you know, with my daughter, you have to come to school. Now, granted that morning, she skipped to school with her mom, right? Like everything was fine. It was a normal day. She was happy. She's always been just happy, go lucky girl. And I get there and there's an ambulance and they're strolling her into the ambulance and my wife is getting in the back and no one's telling me anything, right? They take off. They're like, get in the car, you follow us. So I follow them. The ambulance stops. They, She's convulsing so bad that they have to stop the ambulance, get in the back and, you know, do some type of um service to her to try to control the convulsing as i get out my car the the other um ambulance guy was like no you you know just get back in your car so i'm like i still have no idea what's going on we get to the first hospital and they misdiagnose her they tell us that she's just having seizures you know no big deal and it was a very frustrating time because there was a big language we Went to a hospital off post because so in Germany, uh, the post I was on, they didn't have like a very advanced hospital. So and then they have Krankenhauses, which is like, I don't know, like, what is that? Um, like a the 24 hour care hospitals, you know, it's like that. Right. So they don't do major things. So then we go to the next level of the hospital, which is kind of like your community hospital in America. They, there's a language barrier. There's a lot that, that is, is happening during this time that I think contributed to her not getting the proper care. Either way, the next day, a neurologist shows up and is assigned her case. And as he looks over the files, he's like, did you guys give her an MRI? And they're like, no. He's like, what? So he gives her an MRI and he realizes that she had a very massive stroke, like an adult sized stroke in a five year old body. Her brain was completely swollen and they needed to do an emergency surgery. They uh, craniotomy, which they take half the skull out and they release the pressure of the brain. And she had about three hours to live at that point. Um, so they sent us to Hamburg, Germany, and they have a specialty hospital in Hamburg that does, you know, specializes in the severe adolescent cases. We get there, they rush her. They, and what I love about Germany is they don't, they don't ask the parents. They're doing what's best for the kid, regardless of what you want. So they had her, once we got there, we were in the waiting room. And then we saw her on a stretcher to go to surgery. And they said, are you coming or not? It, it wasn't sign this. It wasn't new. Right. So they put her in surgery. They cut her skull out. They do a whole bunch of other tests while she's under. And they, they I'll never forget this. The, the doctor in broken English says, I don't know how to say this, but your, your daughter is never going to walk or talk or eat ever again. Uh, she's going to be a vegetable. And I'm like, okay, well, this went left. You know what I mean? Like, what do you, what do you, what are you talking about? And he said that the stroke was very severe and it wasn't treated nearly as, as quickly as it should have. So we, they, there was a Ronald McDonald house and I love Ronald McDonald because they, They've supported us that, this entire time, uh, both in Germany and in, in the States. They gave us somewhere to live because we didn't live in Hamburg, right? Like there was nowhere to to stay. So they uh, 
let us stay there. And I remember my wife and I, and, and I just crying and just screaming because we didn't know what to think as this is happening. My wife is nine months pregnant and she bursts. So I have my daughter fighting for her life in one room. And I have my daughter giving birth. I mean, my wife giving birth in another room. And then you have another child. Yeah. And he's sitting and my oldest is sitting in the ICU room. uh, He was like 10, I think at the time. Oh, wow. So I'm skating back and forth, trying to figure this whole thing out. And it was a lot. You know, I'm not I'm not going to sugarcoat it. it. It was a lot. And I was basically on autopilot. I didn't there wasn't a lot of thought behind it was just reaction right reacting to everything what do i have to do okay i'll do this okay i'll do this you say do go left i go left right Uh, i felt like a private all over again i I didn't have any control right i was just and and it it is a very helpless feeling the uh, surgeons there decided that we needed to go to stateside there was a rare disease that they believed caused the stroke they had only seen this and I think she was the second or third child that they had ever seen this happen to, and they felt like they weren't one prepared enough, and then two, they felt like the language barrier would be hard for her when it came to rehabilitation. That they she would be better off in a, an American rehabilitation center where she understood there what that wasn't another problem to fight, and so there was a problem with that. We have a newborn baby with no paperwork. Right. I mean, literally just fresh days old. Right. So they forced my wife to stay with the baby in Germany. And my oldest son, my daughter and myself get on a medevac flight with wounded soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan. And they fly us to Walter Reed when it was still in D.C. It's in Bethesda, Maryland now. So we get to Walter Reed. And I have no home. I've been in Germany for the last six years, right? I have nothing. I have a bag of clothes that it doesn't even have. To, it's probably not even three days worth, right? And I have, you know, my 10-year-old. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I call um, my wife's mother. And they drive to D.C. They pick him up. They see, you know, my daughter and then they take him, they enroll him in school where they live. They, they were lifesavers, but we're separated. I have my oldest son somewhere. I have my daughter in another country. I mean, my wife and my daughter and my newborn in another country and me and my daughter living in Walter Reed in this isolated room. So it was a very, it was a a very hard time. Uh, And back then, you know, there wasn't like, the technology that you have, we have now there was, you know, we didn't have zoom or anything like that. So uh, I had to go and get a ride just to get a cell phone, just to put minutes, international minutes, just to talk to my wife for a couple minutes. So it was a very challenging time. And I'll never forget that they reiterated what the German doctor said that she would never be able to do anything. She would be a vegetable. And I just told my daughter, I said, look, I can't promise you anything other than we're going to fight. And that's what we're going to do. I don't care what they say. We're going to fight. So she had all of these stuffed animals in the room that they had given her. And I, I held her up and I, and she only had one good arm. And I said, throw them against the wall. Just throw them against the wall. Little did I know she was actually gaining strength in her legs and in her core uh, as she did that. And I would do this four or five times a day. I would take her legs and I would move them like she was walking and we would go up and down the halls. We were stuck in a isolation ward uh, with other really extreme patients. Like we had leukemia, uh, children with leukemia and all kinds of different. So it was very restricted, Uh, but I didn't care. I was like, we're going to, we're going to move down these. If they're going to restrict us, we're going to use every inch of this space. And that's what I did. And I just probably about 20 times a day, I would tell her, you will walk, you will walk, you will walk. And about four months into it, she took her first steps. Uh, She was able to speak. It was not, uh, there was some, some hiccups in it, but going from nothing to that was a win. And she was able to use her one good hand and eat and feed herself in those four months. So, she accomplished everything that the doctors said that she wouldn't do. And they would come in daily. 
like multiple times a day with their team and tell us everything that she couldn't do and everything she wouldn't do. And this is why. And I just kept on telling her, don't believe him. Don't believe him. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And she did it. And so by the time we went to an in-house rehabilitation center, she was already ahead of the curve. She was already doing what they didn't think she was going to do. So we, we already had a leg up. And um, the then there was the next problem, and that was vasculitis is what they believe caused this massive stroke. And vasculitis is usually found in older humans and usually in the lower extremities. What happened is uh, this rare, very aggressive strain of vasculitis went through a hole in her heart that never closed when she was born. It clogged three of the four major arteries that led to her brain. And then that restricted the um, right side of her brain. And then her, the stroke happened on her left side, right? Because it does a reverse. Uh, if it's the right side that's affected, the left side is the one that stops moving and stops working. So it was super aggressive and it continued to spread up through the right side of her brain. They put her on steroids to kill it. And that was some, in, in those cases, a high dose of steroids kills vasculitis, right? That's, that's the remedy. It did not work. It was not touching it. This thing just kept moving and moving. And what they were scared of is the left side of her brain uh, being affected. And then that's like the learning center. So that's then then she really will be a vegetable. So they started her on chemo and she was doing the highest dose of steroids that her body could have. And she was on chemotherapy for six months, seven months, something like that. And so she was getting both of those treatments to try to eradicate the vasculitis that was so aggressive on her brain. And what's crazy about it is it didn't eradicate it. It just paralyzed it. And when you do an MRI of her brain, even to this day, we just have one from about a year ago. The entire right side is just black. It's just all, it doesn't function. So her entire right side doesn't function um, only her left side. And they, they literally, stopped it just in the nick of time which i believe is the universe at work because god knows it would our lives would be completely different if both sides didn't function so uh yeah and so now she she's 17 she actually works uh for the ymca at the daycare center doing what she loves she trains dogs on her own she has learned how to do so much with just her she still can't use her left arm but she has learned how to make do ponytails and all kinds of stuff that is, you know, we take for granted when we have both arms. She does it with one hand, she ties her shoes, all kinds of things. So it's it's she's a remarkable young lady. Well, and the whole thing, you could have gone from the the devastation of can't do a darn thing and just listen to what they said and just give up. Yeah. But you didn't. There's no victim here. No, let's move on. And that's what I love about you and the whole tenacity part. And honestly, I'm thinking in the background there, there's a Mrs. Tenacity. There is. And I would love to hear her story too, because she's, she's on the other side of this. You know, she's got the baby, she's got the, the older, older son. And then you do have another child, another, all boys, three boys and a girl. I have three boys and one girl. Yep. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. But so she's, she's on the other side holding up because You've got a lot happening with you. And then she's this whole family situation could have knocked down a lot of people. And then to say, I give up. Yeah. But you didn't. And that's what you you didn't. And you taught your daughter not to give up. So talk about a confidence course. Your life has been a confidence course. And it doesn't happen overnight. Right? No, no, it's, it's, it's progression. You know, it's, it's a decision, right? Like you can settle but you get everything that everyone else is saying or whatever that situation looks like. Right. So if we had to listen, if we had to settled for what the doctor said, then we get nothing. We get a daughter who we have to spoon feed for the rest of her life. We get a daughter who misses out on school events on, you know, just living life, you know, no decency of life really, you know? And to me, it was unacceptable not to at least try. Right. Uh, I mean, there, there's something crazy 
special that happens when you decide just to go all in and go for it. Leave it. They in sports they call it leave it all on the court, right? Or all on the field. But you give every ounce of who you are. You just say, I don't care. I don't care. You're not, it's not gonna be this way for the lack of effort, right? And usually when you give that effort, the results come in your favor. Uh, I mean, 90% of my life, probably more than that. If I've given the effort, I've gotten phenomenal results. I mean, great results. And so my daughter is just an example of that. And you're right. My wife, she is the glue of the family, right? She, her story, uh, she's, I'm encouraging her to write a book. And, you know, I I think that we're in an agreement, right? That she's going to do it because you're right. Like there was a point where there was three kids in, in therapy, right? And they were going to therapies. They had sessions, I think, twice to three times a day, Monday through Friday. Sometimes there were additional therapies like um, activity therapy type stuff on Saturdays. The other additional side of this story is that your two boys have autism. Yeah, yeah. And that's even crazy. And and they are on two different sides of the spectrum. I have one that would cry for four hours. Like when I say cry, like hitting themselves, scratching, like just completely meltdown right and for i didn't even know a human being could do that for four hours and not like lose or hurt themselves right he would go and non-stop and then i have another one who can't speak didn't didn't talk for seven years you know so and then we have my daughter who we're still having to work with every single day because there's just a small time frame to enact change before things become permanent right and so uh and then i get injured yeah because now well you're out of the service at this point and we talked about motorcycles earlier that was your basic freedom wasn't it It was the opportunity oh yeah well yeah and i mean i was already injured coming out of the the army i was in show she had to juggle all of that and then by the time i get out they have found like a a system right like they were okay the the my my son who wasn't speaking uh was starting to speak he wasn't super clear and they still considered him nonverbal. but to us he was speak. we could understand because you know we live with him mm-hmm. and then we had gotten my my youngest son who was screaming his his <laughs> his guts out we had got him down to about an hour hour and a half at a time so these are wins for us at this point and so things are going better and then my daughter is is doing well she's kind of uh you know still going to therapy but she's confident she's she's outside of that window so now it's just kind of reassuring that she can learn life right and learn how to function with what she has in this life um and when i lose my purpose it was like the cam- the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Uh, that was probably the darkest place in my life because I, for the first time in my life, I was doing something that I loved. I was good at. I It brought me confidence. It, it taught me who I was. And now you're telling me that for serving my country, for, for going to war for you guys, you're going to kick me out. And I felt that I was more capable than anybody they would put in my spot, right? So it's a little arrogance, but, you know, it is what it is, right? That's what I believe. I believe that they didn't have the basis to to kick me out, right, and and make me – and they called it retirement. But to me, they were just kicking me out. They were done with me, right? They, I had given them what they wanted, and because I couldn't do more for them, they kicked me to the curb. And so I, I became angry. I became just bitter. Because that was that was my 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 sense of purpose, you know, outside of my kids, that was my purpose. And I began to drink uh, like a fifth of whiskey a night. Uh, it started because of the nightmares, man. Like, I don't know if you've heard the saying, an idle mind is the devil's playground. Mm-hmm. But it's very true. When I I, I went through a, a little bit of the PTSD before I got out, but not to a super large extent right when i got out it like just everything rushed in right i'm talking nightmares 
from my childhood, things that I, I didn't even think were an issue, right? That I had moved past. They, I did not move past it. They, it was very real. And I was not able to go to sleep. I was, I mean, I was getting an hour of sleep a night. So the drinking started with me trying to just go to sleep, right? Just get some type of decent rest at night. And that quickly turned into an addiction. And again, I'm still my mother's child. So I didn't even take into account that she has a very large addictive personality. And so I fell into that trap. And next thing you know, it turns into a fifth of whiskey a night. I start smoking marijuana, which again, I know that a lot of people use that and it works good for them. But for someone who is using it, not as therapy, but as an escape, it's, it doesn't matter what you use. You can replace it with money, with work, with whatever drug you want, because anything can be a drug, right? If we're using it for the wrong reasons, for the wrong purposes, it, it, it's all the same, okay? It, I was just numbing my mind. Yeah. I did not want to face my stuff. I did not, I was just running from it all. So I start taking up riding motorcycles to combat my mindset right to give me something that's fresh that's you know real that that will give me some life and it was working you know i i loved it i could get on i it was just me and the wind and this bike and i loved it and in 2015 so three i got it or no 2018 so i got out in 2015 in 2018 i'm riding and i'm making a left turn my light turns green I'm making this left turn. There's an 18 year old kid on his cell phone. I don't know what he, what app he was on, but he was he was more into that than he was what was in front of him. He had a red light. He didn't even touch his brakes. At 45 miles an hour, he plows into me, and you know most people thought I was going to pass away, uh, but I didn't. Uh, I was able to survive it, obviously, because we're talking. But it, it was definitely a um, a time that you thought would have changed me, right? But it didn't. It, it did not. Uh, I got hit and I doubled down on what I was already doing. Except this time, now I had Oxy, right? So now I have Oxy and I'm taking that, right? And two years later, so I, I decide I'm going to face my fear. I'm going to get back on the motorcycle. So I get back on the motorcycle and I'm riding, but this time I have five other people with me. We're all on Harley Davidsons. How you don't hear five, six Harley Davidsons is out of this. I, I don't know what they were doing in that car, right? I have no earthly idea. But this minivan in the middle lane swerves over at 65 miles an hour and plows into me. I didn't even have time to do anything. There was a Jersey barrier right beside me. He hit me so hard that my bike was implanted into the Jersey barrier. It never even fell back down. There was construction work where they were expanding the road to the left of that. So I flew over the Jersey barrier and into the construction zone. They, I had a couple military guys in the, on the ride with me. So they, they gave me first aid and they kind of, you know, controlled the situation until the ambulance got there. On the way to the first hospital, I flatlined. Um, they revive me. And when I get, when I guess when they do the assessment, they realize, hey, this, we, we don't, we can't serve him here, right? There's nothing we can do. He needs to go to a, a trauma hospital or a trauma center, sorry. So they medevac me to VCU in Richmond, Virginia, which is, you know, like the medical mecca uh, in, in Richmond. And so they send me there. And I go into emergency surgery and they open me up and they realize that the MRI didn't show the extensive damage that I had. So they had to close me up, get more stuff, and then put me into another surgery. As I'm waiting for the second surgery, I flatline again. And I don't remember much uh, of this part. Uh, I remember waiting to go in to the surgery room. And then I remember them telling me that, asked me questions. And I thought I was talking to them like I'm talking to you, but I wasn't. I was like gibberish. She talking. They thought I was having a stroke and I wasn't. I was just, you know, flatlining, you know? Um, and I remember waking up and two 
nurses are holding me and there's a fuzzy, I think he was a doctor. He was, everything was real fuzzy, but I could hear everything clear, like crystal clear. I could hear them talking about saving me. I could hear them talking about my heart rate being 190 um, and that it needed to go down or else, uh, you know, I'm at risk of stroking out and, you know, all of this stuff happening. And then I wake up in ICU. So I was in ICU for seven days and it was kind of the best thing that could have ever happened to me. And I know a lot of people might say, I don't know how this could be a great thing, but it was, I was on a path that wasn't good for me, my family. I was ruining my relationship with my wife, who's my best friend, right? I've known her and, and we've been together since like 10th grade, right? So she is my life. And then I have these kids that I've fought for, I've helped, I've invested my life into, and I'm not present for them now, right? Like all of a sudden, the guy that they know isn't even really there, right? I'm just a robot drowning his his sorrow and his pain uh, daily. And so when I was in this ICU room, I had to face the man in the mirror. There was no drugs. There was no one could come see me. It was COVID. So, you know, not even my wife could come in. I'd had no cell phone. It got destroyed on the, or lost on the, uh, uh, the bike, whatever happened to it. I don't know. I didn't have it. So I had reruns and I had myself and you, you end up in time is seamless in, in these situations, right? Like four o'clock in the morning is no different than 10 o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the evening, right? Like there is, when you're, when this is your life 24 seven time, it really goes out the window and it's all seamlined um, or streamlined. Sorry. And so I began to really face me and, tracing the roots of why I was the way I was, why I was drinking so much, why I was, you know, trying to numb everything instead of being the man that I know that I was and just face it and conquer it. Right. Because that's the real me. The real me faces something that conquers it and it moves forward. Right. I don't let life get the best of me because I never wanted to turn out like my mom. So that was like one of my motivators. Right. Um, but I had turned into my mom, right? Like I, I was an exact replica of how she was just not as intense. So as I did that, you know, I, I really began to solve a lot of my issues. Right. And I realized that I had a lot of things I didn't deal with. I didn't, I had just moved past, but I never really dealt with those things. And so it allowed me to, to face them, to, I call them skull drag them, right? I skull drag these, these things, right? And I, I left that hospital because I was in the hospital altogether 14 days. And after those 14 days, I was not the same man. I just, I, I wasn't. I, it had, I don't know if you've ever, if you read a lot of Napoleon Hill, but in Outwitting the Devil, he talks about hypnotic rhythm. And I was in a negative state of hypnotic rhythm. And he talks about you have to have something massive happen to get you out of that, that rhythm. That's why alcoholics will know that they're dying and continue to drink. They're in this hypnotic rhythm. They can't help themselves but to do what they're doing. And this was my way out. And it was. And I turned 180 degrees. I started chasing, mastering my mindset. I fell in love with all of that. Right. And so at the, at the end state, now I'm where I'm at today. I've, I, I fell in love with personal growth because it saved my life. Journaling saved my life. I couldn't walk. Uh, that's where I really started writing. I, I, I didn't even know I was that good at writing until I started writing. And so I fell in love with that. I fell in love with just being able to express myself, being able to know me. So uh, that's kind of how it, it all went down with that. Yeah. Well, it's an extraordinary story and there's so many things to it. And I'm, I'm relating to, to my, what my audience might be thinking too. And many of them have had something happen in their lives that to them is overwhelming and they just stop. They yeah. just quit and they're scared to move forward. It's kind of like, I heard you say that one time after the first accident, you were scared to go through an intersection. Yeah. 
I was. Well, you can't drive if you don't go through an intersection. Right. So you have to face those fears and fear is just false expectations appearing real. Yep. And I have a friend of mine got me on a book uh, by Susan Jeffers, uh, Dr. Susan Jeffers. And it's basically face your fears. Just do it. Yeah. Do it. And don't let what other naysayers and the negative nannies say to you, uh, because you'll you'll stay there. You'll stay in the negative. I I have a friend of mine this morning from England uh, put out a, a little video and she's a positive psychologist. And she said, our brains are wired for the negative. If I ask you, what do you want to do? What is your dream? You sit there and go, I don't know. But if you write down a list of what you don't want to do, you can write down a hundred of them right away. Yeah, it's it's that's the same reason why, how many people stop to see the sunset versus how many people stop to see an accident or a police officer pulling someone over, right? We are, I mean, we're hardwired in this, in this way. It's just like, fear isn't a bad thing. It's an indicator, just like your oil light coming on in your car, right? It's, it, it's telling you, Hey, check this out. Right. So that way you can approach it, not stay away from it, but approach it the right way. That way it doesn't hurt you. Right. Um, so when we, when we change our perception of what these things are, um, we are able to get through it because you're right. It, you, you can't drive if you're scared of an intersection. Right. But I can use this to be aware, hyper aware, to know my surroundings better, to uh, use it in the in the manner in which it was supposed to be in the first place. And that's just allow me to move without getting hurt. Right. And so when you when you apply all of these these things like fear uh, the right way. Right. And look at it the right way. It's no longer something that stops you. It actually helps you progress um in a smoother manner and we're only asking folks to move forward one step at a time yeah we didn't get to where we are you know all at once it, it was over time and uh, and i love i say take your pain turn it into your purpose and yep. then passion yeah you've done that and it's extraordinary and i give kudos to your oldest son yes who through all of that Bless his heart. He must have felt like, well, who am I? I'm the only one in the family that didn't have something happen. Bless his heart. He was there. He was the support. And uh, so your son and your wife, kudos to them. Uh, Mr. Tenacity has a Mrs. Tenacity and all four little tenacities. Uh, and it's determination and it's positive thinking, empowerment. And you're doing great things, sir. So how can people get a hold of you? How can they listen to you? Yeah, so my podcast is the Legend of You podcast, and it's on all the major platforms. Uh, you can reach me at mrtenacity.com. You can email me at mrtenacity40 at gmail.com. Facebook, Chato Singer. Uh, I'm Mr. Tenacity, I think, on Instagram. And I don't know all the, the web, the little thingies, but all the social, I'm pretty much on Mr. Tenacity. You'll find me. Uh, if you type in the hashtag, go kill it. That is my hashtag. So that's a, a, a good way to, to find me as well. And I'm on Authority Magazine as well. So I have a several, like seven or eight articles there as well. So you can find me any any of those those areas. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And, and uh, listen to Ron Rappaport. A friend, my, my friend Ron Rappaport has It's a Rap with Rap. And he uh, actually something at the end of my show. We, we talked about that. But he interviewed you. Yes. And, uh, we've had some fun experiences and I'm going to connect you with some of my veteran friends that have also been guests on my show. I think we're all kind of, we have this synergy. We have, you know, these circles that are now overlapping and that's important because it's not about the number of people that we can affect. It's the one. Yeah, I amen. Heard you say this. It's yes. One. Yeah. That's all I care about. I know you will have uh, affected one person from today's story. Me, yeah. anybody. <laughs> But, well, I, I really appreciate you having me. It was an honor. It really was. And a pleasure. You're a great host. And uh, I do. I hope that your audience uh, can relate to this and and takes extract some type of value that they can apply in their life. So. Absolutely. So thank you for your service to yes. government, to, I mean, to America. Thank you for your service to your family. And thank you for your service to me today. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. All right. And you have a wonderful day. Thank you. So yes, much. you too. Thank you for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you are the victim of a scam or cybercrime, 
please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, Florida, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, make a small donation to help victims around the world receive the help they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfoteaming products at BenfoComplete.com. Use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thank you for being with us today. Go to my website, The Woman Behind the Smile, for additional resources and information. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and enjoy the replays. My books are all available on Amazon.com and Audible, and I encourage you to join us again. Have a great day. My past guest, Ron Rappaport, two-time male breast cancer survivor and lymphedema thriver, hosts an awesome podcast titled It's a Rap with Rap, which features guests that have overcome life's challenges and adversities and can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. This is a podcast with purpose and worth checking out. It can be heard on most major platforms and on Ron's website. It's a rap with rap.com.